in verse 17 following. As he was setting out on a journey, a, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began to ask him, a good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking up at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words his face fell and he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished. And they said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking upon them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this reading from his word. A few years ago, when school starts, there are always strange emotions that go through the minds and hearts of young people. I remember one of our children, when he was starting into the first grade, they always got out of bed in the morning and came into the bedroom and climbed in bed with my wife and me. And this one came in and was staring up at the ceiling. And I could tell that great thoughts were going through his mind and I couldn't figure why he looked so troubled. And so I said, what are you thinking about? And he said, how do you know what room to go in? <laughs> and you know, that's a pretty, uh, indication, pretty good indication about what we think about when we go off to school. We wonder about what room we're going to be in, who our teachers are going to be, who our roommates will be. And all through life we find that when we move to a new place or we take another milestone in life, the change itself creates uh, some anxiety for us. And so I thought that perhaps the best way we could begin our year together with the students uh, would be to look back at a very crucial encounter with Jesus Christ. The title of the sermon is A Severe Mercy, and later on in the sermon you'll know uh, why it is a severe mercy. Um, it is because Jesus often speaks to us uh, through these times of pain and change in life. For it's then that he can break down the barriers that we erect around ourselves and that he can speak to the needs of our hearts. And so if you have a Bible and you want to follow the scripture, it's there in Mark 10:17. The story of the rich young ruler is one of those stories that all of us feel like that we know by heart. But every single time that we go back to it, if we look at it carefully, we can find that the Lord is still speaking to us 
words that we need to understand about what the cost of discipleship really is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the great martyrs of our own age, and one of the great spokesmen for God, spoke of what he called cheap grace. And he said when Jesus bids a man to follow him, he asks him to come and die. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer paid for his faith in Jesus Christ with his life when he was hanged by the Nazis just before he was uh, just before the prison where he was would have been liberated in 1949 at the age of only 39 years of age. So here we have Jesus on his way, really going toward Jerusalem. And a young man, Matthew, tells us that he was young. Luke tells us that he was a ruler. All three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptics, tell us that he was rich. He was young. Evidently, his clothing indicated that he was rich. He was a person of prominence and authority. Whether he was a member of the Sanhedrin, we do not know but he was a person of some official capacity. Luke is careful to point him out as a ruler. This means he was an important and impressive figure. He came running to Jesus enthusiastically and fell at Jesus' feet and spoke earnestly to him. Good teacher, he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He asked the right question. What a tremendous question it is. Would that we had more young people today who wanted to know what is life all about really? Advertisers tell us that one of the key words in advertising is life. The Slitz beer commercial has it that you only go around once in life. But what are you going to do when this life is finished? Where do you go then? Why are you here? This young man had seen a quality in the life of Jesus and perhaps also in the life of his disciples that made him come to Jesus asking this tremendous question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know that the Gospel of John tells us that he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. In John 20, verse 31, the writer of the Gospel of John, the Apostle, says, These things are written that ye may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. So it's tremendously important what your attitude will be toward Jesus Christ. He uses a tremendous word when he uses the word good in reference to Jesus. When he says to him, good teacher. The Jewish writings call the Talmud. There is never one single use of this word good that is used right here except in reference to deity, to God. So Jesus seizes 
on this strategic use of the word good and asked him the question, why do you call me good? There is none good but God alone. He wonders if this young man may already see something in him that's greater than he would have seen in any other preacher or prophet or miracle worker that would have come around. And so he pushes him back, as he often does, to his own word. Why do you call me good? Are you calling me good because you see God in me? What do you think of when you think of Jesus? Do you think of a purple-robed figure in a Sunday school poster? Do you think of just someone whose picture is in the Bible or a statue that you've seen? Or is he a living, real force? Is he the very Son of God in Anderson Auditorium today, ready to confront you in such a way that when you go away from this place, you can't possibly be the same anymore? What we deal with in the gospel records is with God incarnate in human flesh. And Jesus wants this young man to know the incredible importance of what he is saying. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Then Jesus asked him a question about the commandments. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. My think of what a tremendous candidate for church membership he would make today. If you saw a young man who could say, no, I have never committed adultery, I have not stolen anything, I've never lied, I haven't cheated, I've honored my father and mother. Jesus had already given the Sermon on the Mount in which he had taught that there were deeper meanings to these commandments. Commandments that said not only thou shalt do no murder, but that thou shalt have no hateful thought toward anyone else. Not only that thou shalt not commit adultery, but thou shalt have no lustful thought. And Jesus was wondering, I think, has he really had his eyes opened to the deep significance? Does he know what he's saying? But look at his reply. He said to Jesus, Teacher, Rabbi, I kept all these things from my youth up. I'm religious, but I'm bored. There are people who get that way. They're religious, but bored. They think they know it all. A woman said to me one time when I asked her something about reading the scripture, she said, oh, I've read the Bible. In other words, she was saying to me, I read it once, and that's it. But when you take that attitude, you close your mind off from God, the living God, who brings life that moves in and through us and changes us into what we ought to be.
He said, oh, I've kept all these commandments. I never killed anybody. I've honored my father and mother. I haven't cheated anyone. I didn't get my wealth in a wrong way. And you know, I think he was very sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. I don't think that he really had lived up to all the commandments because wealth was his God as is demonstrated later. But Jesus looked at him and loved him. And because he loved him, he said something very severe to him. He said, one thing you lack. Go, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Isn't that interesting? Jesus saw that the barrier that stood between this man and God, between this man and following Jesus as Messiah, was that his wealth was really his idol, and his wealth was a barrier. And in love, Jesus wanted to break this barrier down. There are three things that I want you to see right here that are very important. First of all, Jesus finds us where we are. The other day we thought about Zacchaeus in our church when we were studying the morning lesson. That Jesus looked up in a tree and up there hiding amongst the leaves, he saw that little tax collector, that little crooked politician. And Jesus called him by name and said, Zacchaeus, come on down out of there. I see you. Come on. I'm going to your house today. He took a great risk when he did that. He knew that people would say, do you see what he's doing? He's going to eat with the mafia. Who in the world? He couldn't be a prophet. No prophet would be seen with a guy like that. Why, John the Baptist would have scorched him. John would have screamed at him, you will go straight to hell immediately. But Jesus said, come down, I'm going to your house. And Zacchaeus was a person of great wealth, but there was a great change that took place in Zacchaeus, as we saw. Jesus wasn't impressed with his wealth, but Jesus wanted to tear the, the leaves away, the barriers away, and get to him and bring him to God. And salvation, in its fullest, truest sense, came to that house that day. And you see what Zacchaeus did with his wealth. He demonstrated that it was not his possession, but that it was the Lord's, that he would restore whatever he had cheated, that he'd give half away to the poor. Now, Jesus didn't say, go and sell all that you have and give it to my disciples. The church has always resented it because he didn't say that. The preachers have always thought that Jesus should have said, go sell everything you've got and bring it and give it to me. But that isn't what he said. He said, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Jesus wasn't interested in his money, except to see that it didn't keep him away from God. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot inherit heaven. You cannot work your way to eternal life. You cannot inherit eternal life from your mother and father because they were Presbyterians. You don't get it like the color of your eyes or your skin or your hair. There has to be a new birth, and Jesus wants to strip away the barrier. 
One of my very favorite poems is by Robert Frost, and it's called Mending Wall. And there's a famous line in that poem that says, something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. It takes place the scene that the poet is describing up in New England, where these two neighbors get together on a certain day each year and go out and replace the stones in this dry wall that separates their property. And one of the neighbors really doesn't see any sense in going out there every time there's this gaping hole in the wall. And so he jokes with his neighbor who is always giving the slogan to him, good fences make good neighbors. And so Robert Frost says, Something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. He said, is it elves that come out and pull it apart? What tears a wall down every year? Well, Jesus doesn't want a wall between us and God. He doesn't want this wall of wealth to stand between this young man and salvation. And so Jesus wants to tear the wall down, to tear it down, so that he'll know God. And then Jesus wants him to come and follow him in fellowship. Let me tell you about a few people for whom this wall has been torn down. This morning we were singing in the first two hymns, Two hymns by John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader. When he was a little boy born in England, his mother was an earnest and devout Christian, and she taught him scripture as a little tiny baby when he learned to talk, and that's one of the most valuable things you mothers can do with your little babies. Even when they're two years old, you can teach them to say Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. You can teach them to say God is love. Well, John Newton's mother taught him the scriptures. She saw that she was dying with tuberculosis, and she prayed with her little child, and she taught him the word of God. After her death, when he was only seven, his father put him out to sea as a cabin boy. He fell in with very vicious and vile people on board ship. He became a horrible atheist who denied the existence of God, and they said that he could curse for two hours and not repeat the same swear word that he was the terror to the whole ship with his language. A vicious, evil person who could go ashore and buy human bodies and chain them together. And when they became weak coming back toward the ship, he could see them die by the wayside, and he didn't care. This vicious, God-hating man was suddenly taken by storm at sea when he was in his late thirties 
and cried out to God to save him. And this was the man who wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He remembered a Bible verse, and when death was imminent and sure, he cried to God for mercy, and God saved him. Later he came back to England, and he was a very brainy person who was a tremendous navigator, and some people put him together on a ship that was to go on a voyage for two years, and he took along with him a, a Latin Bible and a Greek New Testament and uh, a Hebrew Bible and a Dutch Bible because a lot of the theological works were in Dutch. And when he came back, he took an examination in the Church of England after two years and passed it, and he became a minister in the Church of England. He became such a powerful minister, and he had a great and good influence on William Cooper, the great poet. And they would meet together, and when they would talk about what he would preach on the next Sunday, John Newton would say, I want to tell about my conversion, of how God saved me. And Cooper would help him, and they would write a poem, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. And John Newton would tell how he used to curse and swear with the name of Jesus. And they would write a poem, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. In a believer's ear, it soothes. His sorrows heals his wounds and drives away his fear. And when John Newton died in 1805, Parliament called off its business for that day. And the people in the city of London, the officials had straw placed upon the places near his house so that the hoofbeats of the horses would not disturb the dying man. But God had broken through the barrier of his infidelity and his blasphemy and redeemed him. And he became the great Christian. And we use his words today to express our hymns, to express to God in our hymns of praise his mighty works in salvation. I'll never forget looking at the rugged face of Johnny Cash and seeing the sweat pour down his face on an August day in Dallas, Texas, and hearing him sing Amazing Grace. And people looked at that craggy, scarred face and thought that man is singing a testimony that must be like his own. But this young man, with manners and money and morals, had it all. But he wasn't really willing to give up his wealth for Jesus or for God. I call the sermon a severe mercy and I close with this illustration and a recommendation of this book to everyone here. It's called A Severe Mercy and it's by Sheldon Van Auken and Sheldon Van Auken and his wife Davy had one of those tremendous courtships, one of the most idyllic marriage romances that you'll ever read. This is better than all that junky bunch of books people give you when you get married. Get this. It is, it's much better, more readable, and it's a true story. These two fell in love with each other. They were people of letters. He was a graduate of Yale University with a major in literature, a thoroughgoing Eastern establishment atheist. She shared his own viewpoint. They loved literature. They went together for 10 months, 
and got married secretly in a thunderstorm, and he presented her with a little uh, wedding ring that had ten tiny little diamonds in it for the ten months that they had gone together. Later, they came to teach English at Lynchburg, Virginia. And then he received a fellowship to go and work on his Ph.D. in literature at Oxford University in England at Jesus College. During World War II, they had been stationed at Pearl Harbor. On the day that Pearl Harbor was bombed, he remembered seeing the Arizona, a ship that he had great familiarity with, sink under the Japanese bombardment and in frustration firing his army 45 automatic at the planes that flew over. One night, when he was standing watch on board a destroyer, the yard arm made a cross in the shadow of the moonlight. And strange things come in a man's mind when he's on guard duty at three or four in the morning. And he thought, There's, that's a cross. It's a weird feeling that it gives me. Someday I'm going to have to look into the case for Christianity. But it all seems so incredibly small and so impossible to be true that he put it out of his mind, yet fleetingly it would come back. Then he and Davy go to England. And the people who meet them there in letters are just marvelous people, and they love them. The only thing's wrong with them is that they are Christians, real Christians who talk about Jesus Christ as one who is alive and one who is the Son of God, even God incarnate. They even believe the miracles. And they are staggered that these brainy, intelligent people should believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. And they talk about him, and he alters their way of living. And they talk a lot about C.S. Lewis. And one day he's driving through London, uh, in, through Oxford. And if you've ever been in Oxford, you know that it's an old, old town. And, and the streets are narrow and crowded. And the church bell rings at the great church downtown. And he looks up and sees the steeple and the cross. And it reminds him that he had made a promise to himself that one day he would investigate the claims of Christianity. And so... He parked his little MG car and he goes into Blackwell's bookstore. And if you've ever been in Blackwell's in, in Oxford, and I have, the next miracle takes place here because he was looking for books by C.S. Lewis and found them. That thing is just wall to ceiling with books, 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 books. And he comes on a whole table of C.S. Lewis's books. So he buys an armload of them and takes them home to Davy. And they begin to read these books of C.S. Lewis together. And to make a long story short, she comes to Christ first. And she wrote it in her journal. And he's a little bit jealous of God. I owe this to C.S. Lewis, who has impressed me deeply with the necessity of Jesus to any thinking about God. He is writing about his wife, Davy. She was on the brink, and indeed, then she leaped. Only two days later, she wrote, Today, crossing from one side of the room to the other, I lumped together all I am, all I fear, all I hate, all I love, all I hope. And well, I did it. I committed my ways to God in Christ. 
She was alone when she took that walk across the room. She told me when I came in an hour later, I was neither shocked nor astonished. It was as though I had known she would do it all the time. I felt a sort of gladness for her, and I told her so. But I also felt a bit forlorn. Perhaps there was an unformulated thought which should not have borne the light of day that she shouldn't have done this without me. I did not think about the implications for our future. And did I sense that I should follow her? A few nights later, after a rather gentle talk about Christ, she went to bed, leaving me lying on the sofa in front of the fire reading C.S. Lewis's book on the miracles. A half hour passed and I let the book fall from my hand and switched off the light. I glazed at the glowing coals in the fire and wondered with a strange mixture of hope and fear whether Christ really might in truth be God. Suddenly I became aware that Davy was praying beside me. She had slipped into the room in her nightgown and knelt down by the sofa. I looked at the quiet figure for a few moments. I'd never seen her pray. Then she spoke. When I was in bed, she said very softly, It seemed to me that God was telling me to come to you. I have prayed to God to fulfill your soul. Oh, my dearest, please believe. Moved almost to tears, I whispered back, Oh, I do believe. I was shaken by the affirmation that swept over me, and she wrote in the firelight that I looked gentle and sweet like some medieval saint. We held one another tightly. Well, to make a long story short, they got back to Lynchburg, and Davy, his beloved one, takes a serious and mysterious disease from which she is not to recover. When they had married, they had agreed that they would not allow themselves to have children because they did not want anyone to interfere in their marriage. And believe me, children interfere. <laughs> but they interfere with a good interference. They didn't even want God to interfere. They didn't want anything to come between their love. So what they did was build what they called the shining barrier around their love. And they actually made an idol out of their marriage. And they did not want even God to penetrate that idol. They'd even taken a vow. They loved to sail, and they had a little schooner called the Grey Goose, and they had agreed that when they died, when one of them died, that whoever died first, the other one would take the schooner out to sea and scuttle it and commit suicide. That's how seriously they took that. And so you can see what happens. She becomes very sick. He goes to every doctor he can think of. But it's evident that she is going to die. She wastes away till the place they have to take her ring off and tape her finger. He goes to the hospital faithfully to visit her. And then at 3 o'clock in the morning, he gets one of those telephone calls that those of you who have received it never forget. At three in the morning, the telephone rang, and I knew before my eyes were opened that it was a hospital. Davy was dying. Her pulse was slowing. There would be no rally. They, I asked how long. They thought maybe a few hours. 
I took the time to wash and shave, wondering if it was right for me to use those few minutes for that. But then I remembered how she used to feel my face, and I wanted it to be clean. It was a bitter night. He gets into the little MG sports car. He puts their dog, and he races in it and races toward the hospital. He thinks, now, if only God would cause the steering wheel to give way and take me too. I have felt an immense temptation to swerve and crash into a wall, but I had promised her that I wouldn't do that. And then he goes to the hospital room, and they pray together. Lighten our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord, and by thy great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of thy only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. She whispered to him, I love you, my dearest. He kissed the corners of her mouth. Her breathing ceased, and she died. He drove away crazed with grief. And later, he wrote a letter to C.S. Lewis. He had told him about the shining barrier that they had built around their marriage. And Lewis wrote him a letter back. And that's the letter that I printed in your church bulletin because I want you to have it and keep it. I had written to Lewis in April a long letter telling him the story of the Shining Barrier quite completely, including the completion of the barrier by the last long dive. I told him its purpose to keep in loveness. I told him why we had not had children lest they should come between us by lessening our sharing. Lewis's reply led to this book and gave it its title. He wrote, One way or another the thing had to die. Perpetual springtime is not allowed. You were not cutting the wood of life according to the grain. There are various possible ways in which it could have died, though. Both parties went on living. You have been treated with a severe mercy. You have been brought to see that you were jealous of God. So from us, you have been led back to us and God. It remains to go on now to God and us. She was further on than you, and she can help you more where she is than now than she could have done on earth. You must go on. And that's one of the many reasons why suicide is out of the question. Another is the absence of any ground for believing that death by that route would reunite you with her. Why should it? You might be digging an eternally unbridgeable chasm. Disobedience is not the way to get near to the obedient. There's more. We don't have time. I urge you to read the book. Because the severe mercy is this, the rich young ruler built a barrier about himself. John Newton built a barrier about himself. And what Jesus does is come and tear down the walls and the barriers so that the living Christ, who is God, comes. And when Sheldon Van Auken saw that what he thought was so tiny a little baby in Bethlehem born of the Virgin Mary should be the Lord and God of all the worlds. 
and all the planets and all the stars, it all seems so incredibly small. And yet, only God Almighty could pull it off, and he did. The sad thing to this story is that this young man's countenance fell, and he went away sorrowful because we are told that he had great possessions. I've often hoped that this wasn't the last of him. His countenance fell. That shows he was thinking. And that thinking may have led him to come back to faith in Christ. You know, you can come to Christ by giving as much of yourself as you know how to give to as much of him as you understand. You can ask him to take down the barrier and come into your heart in your own words, in your own way, just inside. You can say, Lord Jesus, right now at the beginning of my college career, I want to give as much of myself as I know how to give to as much of you as I understand. I want you to be real. I don't want to be a plastic man. I want to be a real Christian. I want Jesus to really be Lord of all my life.